There is endless media coverage about how to become rich and how to stay rich. What if these stories that we hear are actually misleading us? That's the topic of conversation in today's podcast episode with Seth Stevens Davidowitz, who has a PhD in economics from Harvard. He works as a data scientist and has studied the counterintuitive things that data shows us about wealth, which we would not glean simply from news stories alone. Welcome to the Afford Anything podcast. This is a show that understands you can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. That doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to any limited resource you need to manage, your time, your focus, your energy. So what matters most? And how do you make decisions accordingly? Answering both of those questions is a lifetime practice, and that's what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of the show, and again, New York Times bestselling author and uh, PhD economist Seth Stevens Davidowitz is here to discuss with us what we can learn from data that we can apply to our lives that we would not, and we, this is information that we would not necessarily know based on what is commonly or popularly understood by the stories that we hear. Here he is. Enjoy. Hi, Seth. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Paula. Great to talk to you. Seth, who is secretly rich in America? Beverage distributors and auto dealership owners. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not the answer I was expecting. Why middlemen? Why beverage distributors? Why auto dealership owners? Why not the people that we more often think of, celebrities, athletes, people who had financial services firms? Well, some of those people obviously are rich as well. I came across a paper. It was in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, capitalists in the 21st century, and they studied the entire universe of taxpayers in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they studied, said, who's the typical member of the top 0.1%? kind of people earning $1.3 million a year, really rich people. And they had this sentence that just shocked me. They said, basically, the typical rich American is the owner of a mid-sized regional firm, such as an auto dealership or beverage distributor. Mm. And I'm just like, whoa, like, why is that? I had the same question you did. I'm like, right. I, to be honest, and people made fun of me because I have a PhD in economics. Yeah. I didn't know what a beverage distributor was. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I said that, I said that in a New York Times article, and I was just hammered. I went viral on Twitter for being the world's biggest idiot. They're like, are we just handing out PhDs? <laughs> uh, I was honest. I did not know. I had not known what a beverage distributor was, kind of a middleman in the beverage industry. And it turns out that beverage distributors and auto dealers uh, have some legal protection. They're kind of local monopolies, regulated monopolies that you can't just start. You can't just move to Colorado and start a beverage distribution company. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of Heineken and Corona and all the companies have their own mm -hmm. uh, beverage distributor and they're kind of locked in. And then they can, you know, the beverage distributors can take a nice cut going from the companies to the actual stores and they have connections with everybody. So the lesson I took from that is getting rich is really, really hard because everybody wants to be rich, basically. Mm -hmm. You need something to kind of help you, to give you a nudge to avoid ruthless competition. Many industries, if you start a company, if you're a pest control company in New York City, there's nothing to stop someone else from starting a new company and just undercutting you on price and taking away all your profits. Capitalism is just a ruthless, ferocious game mm -hmm. that a lot of rich people have some protection from that game mm. that gives them an edge, uh, right. which also implications just if you want to get rich, thinking mm. through uh, what's going to be your protection. Right. So then how would an ordinary individual, somebody listening to this podcast who wants to start a business, find ideas of what could be protected businesses? Or conversely, what are some of the never get rich or rarely get rich businesses based on the data sets? Yeah. So a lot of things, basically anything that just has perfect competition where there's, you're just selling a commodity in whatever form, you're kind of very unlikely to get rich that way. Uh, so you need some sort of protection. Now, the protection doesn't have to be legal protection. Uh, brand protection is a big one. So one of the things that kind of surprised me in the data, we know that there are some celebrities that are rich that are making you know tens of millions of dollars a year, hundreds of millions of dollars a year these days sometimes. There are more celebrities than I thought making, you know, 400,000, 500,000, mm -hmm. 600,000, a million dollars a year. I kind of went into this research thinking, don't try to be a celebrity, an artist, uh, 
podcast host, a painter, a writer. I'm just like, this is the stupidest thing you can ever do. Like we all know those long shot dreams don't come true. And when you actually look at the data, the odds are low, but they're not as low as I would have thought. It's more like a one in 20 bet than like a one in a thousand or one in a million bet that I might've thought it was. Right. So I think going all in, in a creative career, isn't necessarily as risky. It gives you a shot of having that protection from competition, that brand, that those fans uh, that can allow you to make a good amount of money. To back this up a little bit, the premise of this conversation is that we know from the data that the majority of millionaires in the United States are business owners. That is the number one way to become uh, a millionaire. But we also know, and this is one thing that really came out in some of the research that you've been able to collect, that there are certain businesses that do disproportionately make people rich. And so independent creatives, as you were uh, just discussing, artists, writers, independent creatives are actually one of those, uh, what you call the big six of industries in which people can become wealthy and stay wealthy because of that brand protection. You also talk about, in addition to the independent creatives and auto dealerships, real estate, investing, market research, and then middlemen such as beverage distributors. Why is there protection around market research, investing in real estate? How do those fit in? Well, market research, mm -hmm. you have the protection that you've kind of built an a very specialized expertise, hopefully over a long period of time. So you kind of, you know, you maybe collected some proprietary data. Uh, you have some connections, an amazing network you've built over years. And then you know something about a particular industry that nobody else knows. And you write these reports, you sell them to everybody for an exorbitant fee. And it's very, very hard for someone to just out of nowhere, build up this same knowledge base that you had created over such a long period of time. It's kind of like being an independent creative, but just mm -hmm. for more boring topics, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, an independent creative of the like aluminum an, industry or something. I don't, <laughs> an intellectual entrepreneur. An intellectual entrepreneur, I would say. And then real estate investing, I don't know if they fit in quite with the local monopoly, but I mean, there are complications. Investing has great tax write-offs. Real estate has great tax write-offs. So that it's a little more complicated than that. But I think investing in real estate, they do tend to stay localized, those markets. Mm -hmm. So a lot of like mm. the biggest industries are dominated by a few behemoths. So social media, for example, right? you know, it's Twitter, it's uh, or X, sorry. Yeah, it's X and it's Meta Facebook, now. now it's yeah. Meta. It's, you know, it's TikTok. There are a few giants and kind of, there There are really these niche mm -hmm. companies, but things like real estate investing, they're more disaggregated. There's not one investment firm or two investment firms that just dominate everything. You have specialists, you have all kinds of different strategies, all kinds of different expertise. And similarly with real estate, they are, do tend to play to local markets in various ways. So I think that's, a, that's kind of another consideration is, is it an industry that's just dominated by a few global behemoths or do you have a chance of building kind of a small mm. specialty? A lot of times when we think of getting rich, we think of the really richest people, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, Bill Gates. It is dangerous to learn lessons from them because they're one in a billion outcomes. To be the very, very top five on billionaire, you have to dominate a global industry. That's very, very unlikely. But to be a millionaire, you want to have some sort of local industry that isn't dominated by a global industry. So it's a, kind of a different game and a more realistic game to play. Right. And see, that that makes total sense to me because I, I remember from investing in real estate, when we would see these big hedge funds come in and we'd see Wall Street come in and try to buy up uh, rental real estate in these neighborhoods in Atlanta, it was clear that they didn't understand the nuance of the neighborhoods. And so local investors, boots on the ground investors and their friends, you know, like either you yourself are a boots on the ground investor in Atlanta, or you live in Indianapolis, but you've got a bunch of friends who are boots on the ground investors in, in Atlanta. It's, it's that local one-to-one -one where people had the informational advantage. Yeah, exactly. And there has to be some reason that, you know, it's not just dominated by one big firm and all these kind of fields that have a disproportionate number of millionaires have something that's keeping it localized. Right. Now, one of the other um, myths that many people believe about entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs tend to be young. A lot of people, when surveyed, say that 27 is what they imagine the average age of a, a startup founder to be. It's, it's actually 42. And there's 
a positive correlation between advancing age and probability of success up until you reach about 60. Yeah, that's wild. Nobody thinks of a 60-year-old entrepreneur, but they're crushing it. Yeah. Uh, they're like the most successful out there. And sometimes you look at the data and it's kind of obvious and yet also goes against what people think, which is really interesting. One thing I learned is that sometimes surprising stories just capture our attention, are so exciting and so sexy that we think they're more common than we, they are. So mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg starts Facebook at the age of 19 and Aaron Sorkin writes a movie about him. Right. And The Social Network is one of the most popular movies of all time and everyone wants to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Well, the reason that movie was so popular, the reason Mark Zuckerberg's story stays in our mind is because it's so surprising that a 19-year-old is running a media empire. Right. And it's actually incredibly rare and the exception. And more common are the 50-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, the beverage distributors, the auto dealerships, the person who spent his or her career in an industry and launches a market research based on all their context and all the information they've learned over two decades, starts a market research firm at the age of 50. That's mm. common, but who's going to make a movie about that. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's so boring yeah. uh, that we kind of forget. And, and then we make mistakes in our lives where we try to follow the stories we see in movies, which are actually mm. unlikely. The reason they're made into movies is because they're so surprising. They're so off market. They're so unlikely. Right. The man bites dog rather than the dog bites man which is what makes the headlines. Exactly. So 19-year-old starts company rather than 45-year-old starts company. And then so many 19-year-olds, you know, you see after uh, the social network came out, a large rise in businesses started by teenagers and, <laughs> you know, people dropping out of college because Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college. And that's just mm. not a smart play. You know, it, it's a dangerous thing in life is we're so drawn to the great stories that capture our attention mm -hmm. and don't kind of step back and think about how likely they are. You know, what's interesting to me is that there are certain businesses, you know, because it's easy to look at the data and say, hey, the data shows that the majority of millionaires are business owners in, in the United States. And so if I pivot to entrepreneurship, that gives me the greatest chance of building sustainable wealth. But then Deeper inside of that, there are certain businesses where you're just unlikely to have a lot of monetary success. So, for example, and this surprised me, architecture and engineering services. There are high barriers to entry to becoming an architect or an engineer, which you would think would lower competition. Why? Uh, I think there's just like endless supply of people who want to be architects mm. is a big part of that. And it is hard to really stand out. Uh, you know, I think a lot of architects think there may be more independent creatives in that, you know, they are doing something, you know, using their creativity, mm -hmm. but it's not quite like an independent creative where you actually have fans and like a brand, uh, you know, it, except in very extreme circumstances, you know, there are thousands of independent creatives, tens of thousands of independent creatives who have a small group of fans who know their names, who follow them on Twitter, who if they come into town are going to want to meet them or go to their show. Uh, that's not really true for architects. So it's hard to escape the right. the ruthless competition of capitalism. Mm, right. Um, what about other industries like owning gas stations or personal care services like yeah. beauty salons? Yeah, well, the worst businesses by far except for independent creatives are things that are cool and mm -hmm. like that, again, movies are made of. So there's a study of which businesses go out of business the fastest mm -hmm. and the number one to fail, it was from, you know, five, 10 years ago. So it was when these still existed, but record stores was the <laughs> worst. There have been two or three movies about record stores and everyone watched this and like, that's the dream. I'm going to start a record store. Mm. And then, you know, two, three years, you're done. And similar, the uh, toy stores, clothing stores, beauty stores, like they're just horrible, awful, disastrous businesses. There's basically no way to escape competition and everybody's trying to do it because it seems so fun. A game store, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't want to just crush everyone's dream, but it is dangerous to enter some of these fields that are really sexy. But then there are some things that are not sexy, but also it's hard to escape competition, you know, mowing people's lawns or Pest control, uh, pest control, gas stations. Gas stations. A gas station is a little complicated because the study uses tax data. Mm -hmm. 
And I think some of these businesses are, they're hiding a little bit of their money. Right. Uh, so I think gas stations may be a business where <laughs> the tax data may just be missing how many millionaires there are in those businesses. Right. Uh, some of these uh, industries shield their tax money a little bit, but you know, gas station definitely is hard to escape competition. You know, I think of the town I grew up in, there was one gas station who was killing it. You basically had a gas station right off the major exit of the highway where everyone had to go when they were coming back from work. And then somebody realized he was killing it and just put a gas station right next to him. And they just were in a price war the entire time of my childhood. Yeah. That's kind of a classic gas station experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very hard to escape competition. Right. I I think just everybody in business just has to be thinking way more than they sometimes do about what's going to allow you to avoid someone just coming in to your business and charging a lower price. So essentially what I'm hearing is you ask yourself, what is the moat, right? What is the economic moat that's around my business? And also how high are the barriers to entry? And also how desirable is the business? How much cachet is there? So the optimal business would be low cachet, high moat, high barrier to entry. That's right. Yeah. There's this phrase in business, use your unfair advantage. Mm Mm-hmm. We were talking about this before we started the actual recording of the podcast, that since you've been a child, people have been telling you you had a voice for <laughs> radio or podcasting before podcasting existed. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an unfair advantage that you have in this field that allows you to separate yourself. A lot of these businesses like auto dealerships or beer distributors, uh, your unfair advantage is that your dad or grandfather started the business when that was possible and you can just inherit it. So that's obviously mm-hmm. a good way to get into one of these fields with a barrier to entry. But yeah, I think market research, your unfair advantage is the expertise that you built up over and, and the expertise and connections you built up over 10, 15, 20 years in the industry. Right. And that points to another kind of counterintuitive finding that the data bears out, which is that the best employees often make the best entrepreneurs, which is kind of the social myth that we have about entrepreneurship is that it's the rebels, it's the iconoclasts, it's the people who never did well in school and maybe can't fit in at a regular job. That rebel without a cause, you know, uh, caricature. Yeah, there was a study of the profits of various businesses using tax data compared mm-hmm. to their the wages that the entrepreneur had made as an employee. And you see that it's just like a curve going way up that, you know, when you get to the 98th, 99th percentile, 99.9th percentile of employee income, Mm -hmm. you're just way more likely to have a successful business, to have a lot of profit, uh, to succeed in, you know, however you measure it, uh, which does go against this idea that, you know, oh, he's just an employee. He can't make it on his own as an entrepreneur. She can't make it on her own as an entrepreneur. In the data, you know, the best entrepreneurs tend to Mm -hmm. have been the best employees in part because they've learned a lot of relevant information. You know, another finding in the data is that the best entrepreneurs, most successful entrepreneurs tend to start a firm in a very narrow field where they've Mm -hmm. already had a lot of expertise where they've been successful employees. So, you know, that's another idea that, oh, I'm just going to come out of nowhere and be the ultimate outsider and transform Mm -hmm. a field because I'm going to see it from a different angle. And that sometimes happens, but it's rare relative to someone who's been knee deep in the weeds of that business for an extended period of time. That's right. And, and well, that goes back to another social myth that's often born of storytelling. The inventor of potpourri does not have any background in chemistry and yet was quite successful at inventing potpourri, first at noticing the need to mask fecal odor and then ha- at inventing a solution for it uh, and then scaling that and distributing it. But that outsider approach that the potpourri inventor took is uh, the anomaly. Yeah, I almost think like in deciding whether to try a business, whether it's a good idea, the potpourri woman I learned about in uh, The New Yorker, Mm -hmm. I think if you read about it in The New Yorker, it's a bad... (laughs) It's like the inverse New Yorker correlation. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bad business. Like if, if it's in The New Yorker, don't try it. New Yorker articles aren't necessarily made about yeah, there's someone who's writing right. market research reports about real estate and making, you know, spent a decade in real estate firm and now built up some data and now is selling their reports right. and making $2 million a year. Exactly. That's so much more boring than the random woman who decided at a party that she was going to 
cure the odor of feces yeah. <laughs> with no training in this yeah. background. She, she crushed it. She's made hundreds of millions of dollars, one of the wealthiest uh, women in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so good for her. But you only get one life. Right. And you kind of have to make your bets. Hopefully you make take calculated risks and make you know smart bets. And if it's kind of an amazing story, it's not usually not representative of the of data. The data, yeah. Mm, right. Okay. So the the inverse New Yorker index. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, not just New Yorker. You know, Today right. Show, uh, sixty Minutes. Like anytime it's yeah, someone's kind of getting a lot of attention for what they did because it's the reason that happened is because it's so surprising and you know surprising things frequently right. aren't representative. And then so many people just try it. You know, how many people read that story and then just said, "Oh, maybe I'll cure the." Order from urine, <laughs> like, right. like, like you know, people are. You read these stories and you think, well, that seems fun. That seems quirky. That seems interesting. Uh, and that's a dangerous way to make decisions. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. Home is where you go to relax, to recover from the day, to get ready for the next day, and you want it to feel nice, but you don't want to spend a lot of money. You need something that's in budget, something affordable, but also something that fits your style and taste. Wayfair has you covered. They have everything from appliances to furniture to art to rugs for your living room, your bedroom, your deck or patio. I have shelves from them that are hanging in my bathroom right now that they look really nice, but they're also super functional for storage. I have a daybed from them that's in my living room. Again, very functional, multi-purpose. You can get items from Wayfair for your own home. You can do it for a rental property. They have a massive, massive selection. So regardless of what your taste is, they've got a huge variety of styles and it's very budget friendly. You'll find pieces that look good, that fit your style at a great price. And they have fast and free shipping even on the big stuff. Every style is welcome in the Waberhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R dot com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search. It's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet, so I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card with more miles and I'm getting business class upgrades. I'm getting lounge access. I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. The 
data also shows when it comes to going back to our topic of independent artists, which we were talking about earlier, or any type of independent creative, that there is a correlation between being prolific and being successful. To have great quality, you must produce great quantity. But also, it isn't sufficient to be prolific if only one localized area sees the result of your work. You actually need to travel quite far and wide to uh, have your work exposed to multiple markets. And that's sort of different. Uh, that, that's the opposite of what we were talking about with real estate, where you want to be hyper-local. Uh, why is that? Yeah, well, with something like art, there's so much randomness in what catches on. You know, we like to think that the artists who are most famous are the greatest, but mm -hmm. there are all these studies that there's, you know, it's very hard for even experts to say that, you know, this painting was really better than that painting or if what catches on it has such a random component, you kind of need to increase your luck surface area. Mm -hmm. You need to basically increase the chances that your painting or song or podcast is selected among all the other ones that they're not the same, but they're just, you know, it's hard to say that yours is better than other people's. And uh, I think a mistake that a lot of artists make and a lot of people make, and this is probably true, even some business people make this mistake too, is just hoping the you know, the world's going to find you and any way you can get more of your stuff out there in the world, whether put, putting a lot of it out there, traveling to much wider, being on more shows, being on in more galleries, that just dramatically increases your chances of stumbling on mm -hmm. one of these big breaks that could make your career. And, you know, the thing about art and, and careers in general is once you're in, you're kind of, it's kind of a snowball rolling down a hill. Mm -hmm. phenomenon. So, you know, before you're known, you got to just hustle like mad to get known and take any opportunity you have, whether, you know, it's in the other side of the country, the other side of the world. And, you know, the study that I, that I really loved is a study of painters where they found that the biggest predictor of unknown, the success of unknown painters is how widely they travel mm -hmm. to galleries, to showing. So there are some painters and it seems crazy that they try this, but they, they're not having success and they just show their work at the same gallery over and over again. Mm. It's like, it didn't work. You know, it hasn't worked yet. Mm -hmm. It's not going to ultimately work. And then there are other painters that are just constantly both accepting invitations and just hustling to get invitations. And they're going all around the world and they're not at the level where they're being invited to the Guggenheim or the Art Institute of Chicago or the, you know, the top museums, mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter. They're just, they're hustling. They're out and about in the world. They're in, Berlin today and Tokyo tomorrow and New York City, you know, the day after that. And maybe that's not even possible, but uh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all over the place. And those ones tend to be the artists who then break in to the inner circle of made artists who then can go to all the top galleries and make a fortune from their art. So uh, it's a very important lesson. Uh, pretty much everybody I told this to are like, I need to show this to my friend because everyone has a friend who is just hoping to be found, uh, you know, the, the artist mm. is just doing the same thing over and over again and not allowing luck to work for them and just hoping that they're presenting the same thing the same way they've always done it and looking for their big break. And that's not the way to do it. Right, right. Increasing your luck surface area. But one thing that is notable within art is that sometimes fluke accidents can create the biggest reputational bump. So the Mona Lisa, for example, was a relatively unknown painting until it was stolen. And the news of its theft was the thing that propelled it into a position of fame. And it's now the most famous, arguably the most famous painting in the world. I think that's right. And that's another reason that quantity is so mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. in art, because there's such a random component in mm -hmm. what explodes. All, you know, yeah, the random employee at the Louvre, he stole it. People thought Pablo Picasso had stolen the Mona Lisa. <laughs> People thought J.P. Morgan had stolen it. It was like mm. crazy. It was like the O.J. Simpson trial <laughs> yeah. of that time. And then you know everyone's reading about this painting. Oh, my God. There was a rumor that Picasso had stolen it because he wanted to destroy his rival's career. And they're like, wow, this painting's so good that mm. Picasso wanted to steal it. It's just random, basically, that the Mona Lisa was the one that got stolen. But... The key is if you produce a lot of art, you kind of have more of a chance for one <laughs> of them more, to get stolen. <laughs> yes, there's a higher... <laughs> or, I mean, that's the lesson I took, yeah. right? I mean, the other lesson you could take is like, 
convince someone to steal your piece of art to get attention, but which I think a lot of artists do too. Not like that, but the equivalent of fake mm-hmm. drama or getting in the news in some way to right. get more attention for their pieces of art. Banksy shredding his own painting at the auction yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. What's interesting about what I'm hearing you say is that we often make the mistake of assuming that the stories we hear are representative of the truth, when in fact, those stories are the anomalies. They're the exceptions. And if we actually look at data, the data paints a completely different picture. But also, because of the fact that stories can create self-fulfilling prophecies, we can actually use storytelling to, as you talk about, create buzz around any product or any service, any entrepreneurial or creative venture. Yeah, it's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) stories are dangerous to make decisions based on, but they are useful for catapulting your career. Yeah. If you're an independent creative, Mm -hmm. you should use storytelling in building your independent creative career. And that was a challenge in writing this book because part of my point was that stories are not representative, but there's a reason these these stories stories keep coming out. out And, you know, like I argued against, I'm a big fan of David Epstein. He wrote this book, Range. Oh yeah, he's, he's been on this podcast. Yeah, and he uh, he has a chapter in his book, The Outsider's Advantage. And he says, you know, all these people come from outside a field and they look at things from a new angle. And he, I don't think he uses the story of the poopery woman, but <laughs> uh, he uses, I forget which stories he used, but he's just like, look at these people who knew nothing about that field and then revolutionize the field. And people just eat that stuff up. And the point I want to make is, that's actually not true. You know, look at the data. Someone is way more likely to revolutionize the field if they've been experts in that field mm-hmm. for a long time. But that's so much less exciting. So right. it's a little it's just like it's a challenge that what gets hooked in our mind isn't necessarily the truth. It's the best story. And then so we're all kind of a little bit misled about how the world works. And it's a challenge as a a data scientist who's trying to be a nonfiction author as well. (laughs) Well, how do I make the non-sexy data compelling to people so, you know, stay in their minds that they can make better decisions? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's not easy. How do you make the non-exciting exciting or compelling so that people, so it sticks and people remember that and they're not misled by uh, these amazing stories that they're hearing all the time that just, it's not trivial. You know, there are people... uh, the social network came out, there was a huge rise in people dropping out of college, starting businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's been 15 years from that. A lot of those people, their careers are ruined. Mm. <laughs> They're trying to get back on their feet 15 years later from a decision they made because they saw a movie that was completely mm. unrepresentative of how the world works. So it's very dangerous, you know, our draw to stories and exciting unrepresentative stories. Right. Yeah, I mean, and you'd see that in in investing too. You you know, somebody gets rich off of crypto, and you, you hear that story, or somebody gets rich off of the uh, GameStop AMC meme stonk thing. You hear a few stories, and all of a sudden, the stories become really compelling. And and when it comes to actual investing itself, outside of career, when it comes to monetary investing, oftentimes we hear these stories, these runaway stories of success when the data shows that passively managed index fund investing actually presents the best shot at growing a multi-million dollar portfolio. It's a great example, but it's hard. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I follow the data as well as anyone, but I invested a little bit in Bitcoin when it was at like 60K or something. It was just so hard because my entire, it was called Twitter back then, Twitter feed, <laughs> yeah. just all these people like saying how much money they had made. Right. In Bitcoin, and you're just hearing it from everywhere. And like similar, the path to entrepreneurial success is basically mastering a field over 20 years. So you start as an employee in a very narrow field, you know, when you're 25, 26. And then when you're 42, 43, 44, 45, maybe even 60, the idea hits. It's your time. You have all the knowledge, you have all the connections, and you boom, you're ready to launch your massive business in middle age. Mm. And that's hard because it's kind of the equivalent of an index fund for your career in that it's the boring long-term strategy. Right. And it's not going to be the most single most successful. 
Mm. So while you're going about this, while you're you know still an employee at 34, 35, 36, some of your friends are going to have hit it big. You know, they're going to have started a company and they're going to have had a massive windfall, a huge success. And, you know, they're going to have the Bitcoin of entrepreneurship and you're going to have to put your head down, say, I'm following the data. It doesn't matter. And in 10 years, you're going to get the payoff. Mm, right. And part of the reason that we struggle so much to follow the data and we are more drawn to story is due to cognitive biases that we hold. Can you talk about some of these cognitive biases? I know you've highlighted duration neglect as well as the peak end experience. We'll start with duration neglect. Yeah, well, that's a study of when we're trying to remember how painful something was, mm -hmm. we forget how, how long, long it, it lasted. lasted. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a big part of how painful it was. So, you know, we minimize, it was a study of colonoscopies of all things mm -hmm. back when those were really painful. And turns out that Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics. He uh, gave people different colonoscopies. He, he asked them during their colonoscopy how painful it was. And then after the fact, he said, looking back on it, how painful it was. And it turns out people totally neglected how long it took in their memory of it. So it's mm -hmm. really important to keep in mind that's a huge factor in how painful or pleasurable right. uh, something is, how long it lasted. Right. And that can be applied going back to what we were talking about with the index fund investing strategy of your career. That can also be applied to our memory of what a particular job was like or our memory of a particular work experience. You know? Yeah, I think that's kind of goes against part of what I recommend is that people maybe grind out as an employee for a while. But from your a happiness perspective, there are studies that show that people aren't quitting jobs enough, mm. uh, that if people are indifferent, if you're indifferent between quitting your job and not quitting your job, if you quit it, you're going to be much happier in six months or longer. The data is sometimes conflicting. Making money may not be good for what makes you happy. And it's not like there's one life strategy that is the right answer for all these questions. And I think people kind of wrestle with the complexities of decision-making and know that, you know, okay, maybe if I stick at this job for 10, 15 years, I'm more likely to be a successful entrepreneur later. But also if I don't like this job, the data says if I quit it, I'm more likely to be happy in six months or a year. And then you can make a decision based on that. Well, how important is the chance of being successful entrepreneur in your life? How important is happiness in your life? And, and go from there. We'll come back to the show in just a second, but first. You know, spring is a good time for new beginnings. It's a great time for spring cleaning, for planning outdoor activities, and for going through your financial life to make sure that everything is in place that you need. Everything that you need is in place. And the thing about life insurance is that shopping for life insurance can be part of your financial planning for the year. And Policy Genius is there to help with that. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents and technology. What does that mean? It means you can, in just a few clicks, compare quotes from top insurers. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not for the insurance companies. They don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another. And they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design, 
They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly. But you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's say somebody who's listening to this is trying to make a decision about some element of their life, whether it's their career or where they live, where they raise their kids, what kind of business they start. They're trying to make that decision. And so they start digging into the data, but they find conflicting studies. And also they find studies in which the subjects, uh, the data set doesn't, it's kind of maybe somewhat comparable, but there are also notable differences between their own situation and what the study actually looked at, right? What does a person do when they find essentially either conflicting data or slightly irrelevant data? You just have to be more comfortable with making decisions under uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare that a decision is 100% chance of being the right decision. It's more like it's a you know, a 60-40 decision or, you know, 70-30 decision, 80-20 if you're really lucky. And what the data is is supposed to do is just push you from like 50-50 to Mm 60-40. So I think you have to have lower expectations of what the data is supposed to do. It's not 100% of the data is moving this direction, but I've seen some data and it seems to suggest Mm. that on balance, you know, so let's say I'm thinking of starting a toy store my friend started Toy Store as a big success. Okay, well, I need to know that Toy Store is the third most likely to go out of business quickly. Or I think I think that was in the chart of maybe fourth, whatever it was. It was right near the top. Mm. One of the worst businesses you can have. The average Toy Store is out of business in three years. The average dentist business lasts 20 years. Mm. Three years or 20 years. Like this is very different, a very bad on average business. Right. That has to play into your decision-making. That doesn't, right. now you might have, Let's say you know that you've just created a toy that is blowing up the world and it's gone viral and Oprah just talked about your toy. Then you have so much momentum where these rules don't apply to you. Okay, fine. That's okay. But you need to know no matter where you are, no matter what other factors you have in the equation, that this is on balance, terrible business. Mm. Just know that and then make decision with that in your head and is not this ends the debate mm-hmm. and you know what activities tend to make people happy on balance it turns out that people when they're watching tv watching netflix on social media playing computer games are less happy than they think they're going to be mm-hmm. right that's like a pattern in the data on right. average significantly less happy and when they're exercising, hang out with friends, out about in the world, at the museum, at a show, they're way happier than they expect to be, mm-hmm. than, they, than they would have thought they'd be. Right. Now, that's right. very important to keep in mind as you're going through life. If a friend invites you, do you want to go to this Bruce Springsteen concert? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm tired. I want to lie in bed and watch TV. You need to keep in mind mm. that on average, People who stay and watch TV end up less happy than they think they're going to be. And people who go out to the show with their friends end up happier than they expect to be. Mm. That doesn't mean 100% of the time you have to go to the show. But if you're like close, you have to keep in mind that this bias that reveals itself in the data. Mm, Right. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. Are are there any uh, additional key points that you want the audience to remember? Well, we didn't get as much to happiness as I would have liked to have gotten because 
I have all this stuff on how to get rich and how to get famous. And then when you review the data on happiness, it really is shocking. The things that make people happy are so freaking simple. Mm. It's being with your friends, being with a romantic partner, being married, taking a walk, being near a beautiful body of water. These very simple, very affordable Mm -hmm. things in life tend to make people happy. Uh, So I think, you know, there is a danger in devoting your life to the accumulation of resources or accumulation of fame, accumulation of attention. It's, it's not necessarily the best bet for happiness. You also need to keep in mind all the research on the best strategies for being happy. Be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, <laughs> overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. That is all that's the happiest activity is intimacy, making love the happiest weather, 80 degrees and sunny, a happiest location near a body of water, happiest person to be with, a romantic partner. That kind of sums up everything in the data we know about happiness. So that's important to keep in mind as well as you're going through life. That is a lot easier to achieve than owning an auto dealership, owning a beverage distributor company, starting a market research company. Like That's hard. Being with someone you care about near a lake, you know, hanging out or whatever is not as difficult to achieve. Nice. Well, thank you again for spending this time with us. Where can people find you if they'd like to hear more? Uh, I'm on X at Seth S underscore D. Uh-huh. I have a hyphenated name, Seth SD. And uh, Don't Trust Your Gut and Everybody Lies are my books. And I have another book coming out in about a month. They'll be called Who Makes the NBA? And it's about passion of mine, uh, basketball. Excellent. And we will link to uh, all of that in the show notes as well. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you to Seth. What are three key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Number one, stop counting yourself out just because you've gotten older. We here at Afford Anything see this in our inbox a lot. We get so many emails from people who think their time has passed and think that they can't create anything at this juncture of their lives because, oh, I'm already 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or however old it is. The reality is their experience and their knowledge could actually help them be more successful. And if we stop believing this myth that entrepreneurship belongs to the young, and that's a myth that's perpetuated by news stories, but is not actually backed by data. Nobody thinks of a 60-year-old entrepreneur, but they're crushing it. Yeah, Uh, They're like the most successful out there. And the 50-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, the beverage distributors, the auto dealerships, the person who spent his or her career in an industry and launches a market research based on all their context and all the information they've learned over two decades, starts a market research firm at the age of 50. That's Mm. common, but who's going to make a movie about that? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, That's so boring that we kind of forget. So get rid of the myth that entrepreneurs tend to be young because people, when surveyed, say that 27 is the age that they imagine a startup founder to be. In reality, it's actually 42. And in addition, there's a positive correlation between aging and the probability of success up until 60. And don't you dare email me and say, well, I'm, I'm 61, so it's too late for me. Okay, if there's a positive correlation up until 60 and you're 61 or 65 or 68, guess what? You're actually still very, very young. 68 is the new 28. All right. That's the first key takeaway. Second key takeaway, people want to be rich, but they think that being rich is out of their grasp because there are these connotations around the kinds of people who are rich or what it takes to get there, right? People often think that to be rich, you need to have a spaceship. And, you know, what we know from the data and what we can actually prove from the data is very different. A lot of times when we think of getting rich, we think of the really richest people, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, Bill Gates, it is dangerous to learn lessons from them because they're one in a billion outcomes. And yeah, to be the very, very top five on billionaire, you have to dominate a global industry. That's very, very unlikely. But to be a millionaire, you want to have some sort of local industry that isn't dominated mm-hmm. by a global industry. Things like real estate investing, they're more disaggregated. There's not one investment firm or two investment firms that just dominate everything. You know, you can you have specialists, you have you know, all kinds of different strategies all kinds of different expertise. And similarly with real estate, they do tend to play to local markets in various ways. 
So that is the second key takeaway. Finally, key takeaway number three. You need to increase your luck surface area. Being successful means putting yourself out there a lot. And that goes far beyond the creative field, right? It means trying out different side hustles for viable businesses. It means buying more investment properties if the first one that you bought isn't a home run, or even if it is, right? Your first time at base is rarely going to be a home run. And you need to be at bat. You need to be swinging. You kind of need to increase your luck surface area. Mm -hmm. You need to basically increase the chances that you're painting or song or podcast is selected among all the other ones. People make this mistake too, is just hoping the world's going to find you. You got to just hustle like mad to get known and take any opportunity you have, whether, you know, it's in the other side of the country, other side of the world. And, you know, the study that I really loved is a study of painters where they found that the biggest predictor of unknown, the success of unknown painters is how widely they travel to mm-hmm. galleries, to showings. So there are some painters, and it seems crazy that they try this, but they, they're not having success and they just show their work at the same gallery over and over again. Mm. It's like, you know, it hasn't worked yet. Mm-hmm. It's not going to ultimately work. And then there are other painters that are just constantly both accepting invitations and just hustling to get invitations. And they're going all around the world. And they're not at the level where they're being invited to the Guggenheim or the Art Institute of Chicago or the, you know, the top museums. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter. They're just, they're hustling. They're out and about in the world. They're in Berlin today and Tokyo tomorrow and New York City, you know, the day after that. And maybe that's not even possible, but uh, yeah. they're, they're all over the place. And those ones tend to be the artists who then break in to the inner circle of made artists who then can go to all the top galleries and make a fortune from their art. So those are three key takeaways from Harvard PhD economist, Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or a family member and subscribe to our show notes, affordanything.com slash show notes. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode. Yeah, the Mona Lisa, some random guy at the Louvre. Louvre. This is off topic and you can cut this, but this is just a pet peeve of mine that I was on a podcast and I said Louvre <laughs> and they just, I got hammered. Like this guy doesn't know how to pronounce the mm. Louvre. And then I looked it up and I think there is an argument that it is pronounced Louvre, not Louvre. So, mm. but anyway, it was a random employee at the Louvre, as I say. <laughs>